0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Lori, my wife, that poor woman seated right there, has endured a lot since the day we got married. But one of the moments that I reflect on is the day that I dragged her to see the matinee showing of the film Master and Commander. The reason it was a hardship for Lori was that Lori found herself in the movie theater, the only woman there. The rest of the, the audience were all middle aged men who, like me, had read all 20 books in the series and were there in a critical spirit to make sure that these beloved books were not transgressed against by the filmmaker. But she endured, and she went, and uh, I have to say, even though I am a novelist, uh, my favorite novels are not my own, those books are some of my favorites. So much so that when the last one came out, and I saw the title, I literally burst into tears. Uh, The title of the novel was Blue at the Mizzen, and if that doesn't make you burst into tears, then you haven't spent hours and hours with with nautical history in your mind, because blue at the mizzen meant that Captain Jack Aubrey had finally become an admiral and could fly the blue pennant on the mizzenmast. One of the memories of Jack Aubrey that's always stood out to me, one of the the heroes that he modeled himself on was Lord Nelson. And in the books, Lord Nelson had had a conversation with young Jack and had given him the secret what people called the Nelson touch, like the, the way he went about things, his, his leadership style. And it was pretty simple. Lord Nelson said to Aubrey, Never mind maneuvers, just go straight at them. Don't worry about fancy maneuvers of the ships to get into position, just go straight at the enemy and attack. And so that's what Aubrey did in every battle. He didn't fuss with maneuvers, he saw the enemy and he went straight there to fight, to engage. to to bristle with aggression. I always admired that. When we look at the temptation of Jesus, it's tempting to think that this is a strange interlude between some glorious moments. We just saw the, the baptism and the glory of that heavenly voice. And if we keep reading to the beginning of Jesus's ministry and the Sermon on the Mount, we get the glories of his kingdom teaching. But it's as if between those two things, Jesus does this kind of He takes some me time, some self-care. He goes out in the desert, he fasts, he prays to get closer to God, uh, takes care of himself so that he can be ready to go and embark on his mission. We see this as a time of personal testing, in other words. But I don't think that's what's really going on in the temptation of Jesus. Instead, Jesus, who has now been anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure, is doing what Lord Nelson said to do. He's going straight at him. He's taking the fight directly to the enemy of his people. He wastes no time. He goes directly into the wilderness from his baptism. He goes alone. He fasts. He prays. He enters a state of weakness so that he might confront his enemy and, in confronting him, defeat him. That's what's happening in the passage that we just read. Jesus doesn't waste time. He doesn't start small knowing that one day he's going to have to confront Satan and he needs to work up to it, to have some small victories, maybe throw out some little demons first and get the hang of it. And then eventually when he's ready, confront the final boss of the New Testament, Satan himself, and defeat him. None of that. Jesus, the moment he's commissioned, goes out. He seeks out the enemy in order to fight him face to face. Like Jehu, in 2 Kings 19, when, when Jehu is anointed king, when he's told, you're going to be the next king, he hops in his chariot and he races off to do battle, leaving his army behind. That's how confident he is. And Christ, in the same way, rushes forward into the wilderness in order to confront Satan there. The Spirit, we're told, leads him there. It is no accident that brings him here. It is no accident that Satan comes in order to tempt him, all of this is part of his plan. He enters the wilderness, and in doing that, he chooses the battleground. And then when there, he prepares himself, fasting and praying for 40 days and 40 nights, building himself up spiritually, even as he weakens himself physically. Moses had done this when Moses went to Mount Sinai. He went to the top of the mountain to receive the tablets from God revealing his law. Moses himself reported afterwards, for 40 days and 40 nights, I ate no bread, I drank no water in preparation for this revelation. Elijah, the great prophet, also had done this. Elijah fasted for 40 days and 40 nights as he made his long journey to Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 19. Jesus goes into the wilderness, he's isolated, he's alone. He goes there and he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink, so that over time he is progressively growing weaker and weaker. He is hungry, as we read. And Jesus was led up by the spirit of the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Perhaps this isolation... Perhaps this weakness had a purpose to draw out his enemy. Because Satan comes into the wilderness. Satan comes to test him. Satan comes to him when there's no one around to support him. He comes to him at his lowest ebb. When he is hungry, when he is famished. And then Satan comes and speaks to him and woos him and tempts him. And Satan's words come in the form of attack. What Satan is doing here is he's launching wave after wave of attack. And each time Satan comes, his attacks get stronger. And each time Jesus replies, he responds in the form of a repulse. Why is this the battleground? Why is the moment of temptation the battlefield? Well, because It was in temptation that the human race had fallen in the first place. Genesis 3, it was in responding to the temptation of the serpent that humanity was overwhelmed. If you look in Genesis 3, just to remind ourselves, we read that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? of Satan. Satan sows doubt about what God has said. He sows doubt about the character of God and his goodness. He also makes promises. He promises that through sin, we will become like God. There's nothing to fear. And first Adam was confronted with those attacks, he succumbed. He fell. And now Jesus, the second Adam, goes into battle, toe-to-toe against the same adversary at a greater disadvantage than Adam, because Jesus now in humanity experiences weakness in a way that before the fall, humans did not. And this is the battle that he comes to fight. The Dominican philosopher Sertian wrote, All great works were prepared in the desert including the redemption of the world. Christ is about to do the great work of redemption, and at the outset, at the beginning, he faces Satan head on. So Satan's first attack, the first temptation, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. This is an appeal to hunger, an appeal to human weakness, Adam and Eve had never hungered, they never wanted for anything. So, this is a new form of attack, something we didn't see before, where he's preying on Jesus' human frailty. There's a challenge, right? If you are the Son of God, there's a skepticism, a doubt that is being sown, similar to that question did God actually say, so there is a similarity, but this temptation is made stronger by the fact of Jesus' hunger, like he did it to himself. He went into the wilderness, and he fasted. He made himself hungry, and now it's no surprise that uh, Satan can tempt him in this way. If you sin, he says, if you do this simple thing, you can satisfy your hunger. The means are at your disposal. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread and you will hunger no more. That's the assault. And Jesus answers, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. But Jesus answers each of these attacks by quoting Scripture. And that's something you're probably familiar with. What you may not realize is it's not just any old Scripture that he quotes. All of Jesus's quotes, as you'll see if you look at your order of worship, come from a certain section of the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and chapter 8. In that section of the Bible, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel before they enter into the promised land. He's reminding them of where they've come from. He's giving them instructions for how they should live in the land. And so it's distinctly this word to God's covenant people as they begin to go into battle, begin to take this land of promise. Those are the words that Jesus is quoting here. And he's not quoting them in the sequence that Moses says them. He's quoting them in the chronological sequence of the events that Moses is referring to. So the first event, obviously, is manna in the wilderness. When Moses says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, he's talking specifically about the way that that, that God had sustained the people through this heavenly bread while they were in the wilderness. The full quote from Deuteronomy 8.3 is this, that he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, physical need must not define us. As human beings, we are more than that. We are physical, yes, but we are spiritual as well. Spirit and body and cannot be defined by our physical needs alone. The body needs food, yes, but the spirit, and indeed the whole person, needs the Word of God even more. Without food, the body will die. Without the Word of the Lord, the person will die. Which is more important? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So the denial of the body, as Jesus is doing in fasting, awakens us to the needs of the Spirit, which only God can satisfy. Satan tries and he fails, but he doesn't give up. He brings another wave of the attack, a second Temptation and now here he's going on to what we might think of as more familiar footing. Then the devil took him to the holy city, so away from the wilderness, now to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle or the parapet of the temple. And he said to him, "If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written." And now the Bible here is is twisted by Satan. Jesus has quoted him some scripture, and Satan's like, "Oh yeah, I can do that," and so he quotes him some scripture. From Psalm 91. It says, He will command His angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Having failed in the first assault, He strengthens His attack by bringing the Word of God to bear in His argument. Quoting Psalm 91, Psalm 91, which begins, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So this is a great psalm that we cling to, that speaks to us of the protection of God. And yet Satan twists that very idea. It says, God will protect you, throw yourself down. If you are who you say you are, that's the temptation. He stirs skepticism about God's word. If you are the son of God. And then an appeal to human doubt. Your sense of skepticism and the need for God to prove himself. Jesus, maybe you're not who you think you are. That baptism, that was impressive. And yeah, there was a voice from heaven, but you know what? A lot of crazy people hear voices from heaven. You might be fooling yourself. If you really are who you think you are, prove it. If what you say, what you believe is true, really is true, then you won't be able to, to, to throw yourself off the temple and die, the angels will come. They'll rally. They'll save you. So it's this idea of skepticism that Satan is playing on. He's building up that sense of doubt that all human beings can relate to. Jesus repulses this attack as well. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus isn't just quoting proof texts here. It's not that Jesus just memorized some, some verses and that when Satan tempts him, just any random thing that comes to mind fits. Like Jesus understands the context and significance of these words in a way that I would argue Satan doesn't seem to understand. When Satan quotes Psalm 91, he's clearly twisting it out of context. But Jesus here is speaking the words of Deuteronomy 6.16 with a knowledge of their context. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here to Satan is this. You're trying to get me to do what Moses told the people not to do. Moses said to them they had tested God in the wilderness. They put him to the test, for example, at Massa, where they were upset that they were thirsty, that they were in the desert and they didn't have anything to drink. And then they started grumbling as a result. And their grumbling, Moses says, provoked the Lord to wrath. As they were dissatisfied with their living conditions in the wilderness, the question that they asked themselves that provoked the Lord to wrath was this, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? And in that doubt, in that skepticism, they were provoking God because packed into that is the idea that if God is here, then he should prove himself, right? Right? There's a way for God to show that he is with us, and it would be to provide for us the stuff that we want. And if he's not going to do that, then he might as well not even be here. That's the skepticism in their hearts. And Moses says to the people, when you go into the promised land, don't test the Lord your God the way you tested him in the wilderness. Don't do it. Don't do it. And so Jesus, in this moment of temptation, where he's being asked to do exactly the same thing, to to make God prove himself, Jesus is like, you know what? This lesson has already been taught. We already have the answer to this question. It's already been spoken. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Instead of skepticism toward God, demanding that God prove himself, Jesus rests in all that God has done and he trusts that the God who has been faithful up to now will be faithful in the future as well. There's no need to put that to the test. And so this temptation, too, falls to the ground. Satan has a third and final attack. And oftentimes, when you're fighting and you assumed you would have won by now, when you're desperately coming up with like your best strategy, In that final attack, not only do you bring all of your power to bear, you throw in all of your reserves, but in that attack, you reveal yourself. You reveal your own need as well. And that's what Satan does here, because in this final temptation, he not only tempts Jesus, but he reveals something about himself. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and their glory. He said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship Me. This attack goes to the very heart of Satan's message. He's asking for something that he wants. Like you, I want to be the object of worship. Look at what I will do for you if you will give Me what I desire. Satan desires to be worshipped. And if he is served, then he will serve those who worship him. Worship me, he says, and I will exalt you. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. You've come here to be a king? Great, I will crown you. And all you have to do is worship me. This is an appeal not to weakness, not to doubt, but an appeal to pride. Appeal to human beings where they live. That we have a desire within us to be exalted, to be worshipped. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.25, that is our fundamental flaw. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We seek to elevate things in creation that reflect back to us ourselves and pay homage to them. We've been made to worship God alone. The offer that Satan makes is significant. What he's offering Jesus here are kingdoms. Because he understands as well as King Herod did what Jesus has come to do. Remember, King Herod felt threatened when this newborn king came who was said to be the king of the Jews. And now we see King Satan feels threatened as well because he too has a kingdom that is now in jeopardy And if he can't destroy the king who has come, maybe he could like work with him somehow. They could work together. And so he offers to bring Jesus in to his kingdom, as it were. This is a battle for kingship. Let me be your king and you can rule with me. But then comes the repulse. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This is the fatal blow. This is the moment of triumph. Remember, Jesus has been answering with Scripture. But here he adds a little something to it first. Be gone, Satan. Like he deals that blow. Get out of here. I'm done with you. Now, I don't expect you to remember this, but But if you had your Zechariah cap on right now, and you were thinking hard about the night visions that we went through before, this moment might remind you of something. If you remember in the central vision that we looked at where the high priest Joshua was cleansed in the temple by the the angel of the Lord, there was some wording that we read there that was significant. This is Zechariah 3, verses 1 and 2. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? What's interesting here is if you were to open up uh, Matthew in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the 70. This was the Greek translation that the New Testament authors and that Jesus were familiar with. If you opened up to Zechariah chapter 3 and you started reading, you would read something like, Then he showed me Yesu, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Diabolos, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And if you were to read Matthew in the Greek, you would find Yesu once again and Diabolos again in Matthew 4, verse 1. The exact same words, Joshua, Jesus, Yesu, the same word in the Greek, Diabolos, devil, the same word in the Greek. The vision that we saw in Zechariah is being fulfilled here as Satan is rebuked, as he's slapped, as he's sent away defeated, after this climactic battle, Jesus, the high priest who suffers temptation on our behalf, rebukes Satan decisively. The words he quotes here are significant. Because these are the words Moses quotes to the people when he says that when you enter the promised land, you can have no other gods. When you enter the promised land, you must worship the true God alone. You must only worship Him. There can be no idolatry in this land of promise you must repudiate all false worship here in these words in this quotation jesus repudiates every kingdom but god's kingdom we must worship him alone and then the devil retreats jesus doesn't say be gone satan satan says ah actually i've got a fourth temptation for you now satan's gone so we read in this afterward, then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Just as the angels had ministered to Elijah when he was at his lowest point, now Jesus, after fighting this climactic battle, is ministered to. Jesus in victory, ministered to by the angels. The angels feed him after this long fast. You see here, the devil left him, and it's significant that as Jesus interacts with the powers of darkness throughout his gospel ministry. The way that he does it demonstrates an imbalance of power. Jesus never confronts minor demons, lesser dark forces, with their any kind of sense of suspense. Like he never encounters demonic presences, and you wonder, well, who's going to win this time? When Jesus shows up, they quake. They protest. They don't want him to do to them what he's done to their Lord. They know his power because he's established it already. When you smack somebody's king, they understand that they've got no chance against you either. So now, from here on, Jesus will run roughshod over Satan's kingdom. We will see him in his earthly ministry, knocking about demons, casting them out, commanding them, making them do his bidding. They are powerless to stand against him because of this victory that he has won, Jesus will not only repulse the devil's minions, but he plunders the devil's kingdom. As Jesus' ministry now proceeds, his enemy defeated, people will actually accuse him. Like, you couldn't even do the things you're doing unless you had some sort of devil power in you. You must be in league with Beelzebub. Like, you must have done the thing that Satan tempted you to do. Otherwise, how could you work these miracles? And Jesus explains to them those famous words, a house divided against itself cannot stand. What you're saying is nonsense. That's stupid. Listen to yourself. Of course, if I'm plundering Satan's kingdom, I'm not doing it by Satan's power. I'm doing it because I defeated him. Matthew 12, verse 28, Jesus says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying this to explain his ministry, to explain how he can do the things that he's doing. And you have to ask yourself, who is the strong man he's talking about? Well, it's Satan. And when was he bound? Right here. You just saw it happen. Be gone, Satan. I'm done with you. You took your best shot, and you're defeated. In hunger, in isolation, I stood against you. As the first Adam failed to do, you've got nothing. You've got nothing on me, so go. Satan now is bound. And the evidence is what Jesus is able to do with what used to be Satan's kingdom. The evidence is every single one of us plucked like a brand from the fire and brought into this kingdom. We who were once children of wrath to become children of God's grace because of this great victory. What Jesus won in the wilderness was our freedom. Our freedom from the bondage to temptation. When you think about temptation, Jesus' temptation, if you're looking for quotable quotes about temptation, probably the best one comes from Oscar Wilde. But that famous line that he wrote in the picture of Dorian Gray, where he says the only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. Resist it, and your soul grows sick with longing for the things it has forbidden to itself. The only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. And in our weakness, those words sound pretty wise. Like, Yeah, I've experienced that same thing myself, only the temptation only goes away for a while. It always comes back. The Apostle Paul has a different way of speaking of temptation. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. When you hear those words, remember that as Paul continues, the exhortation that he gives in the next verse is to flee idolatry. So when he's talking about sin, he's talking about all the different things that we succumb to that taken together amount to false worship, to idolatry. And he says, that we should worship and serve God alone. Thinking here of the words of the third temptation. He also warns us in that same passage, he says, Paul does these words, we must not put Christ to the test. Quoting the same words that Jesus quotes here, but transforming them in a pretty significant way by placing Christ in the place of God. We must not put Christ to the test, speaking to the terms of the second temptation. So that we as Christ's people, when we in this wilderness face temptation, we ought to do so in the power of Christ. Remembering the Father's satisfaction in us that was expressed in the baptism that we looked at last time, that came before the wilderness temptation. That satisfaction comes first. Justification precedes sanctification. It's after the declaration. That Christ then enters the wilderness and is tempted. And when we are tempted, we ought to cling to the Son's victory over temptation and his binding of Satan, which has made it possible for us to stand in the day of temptation as well. Because the one who tempts you has already been beaten. He has been beaten by your King Jesus Christ, the one in whom you stand so that the powers of darkness and the king of those powers has no claim over you because Christ has freed you from this bondage to sin. Jesus is one. Satan is bound. Jesus is plundering his kingdom. Thank you for listening.